and welcome to the David Crook Gallery, if you haven't been here, David Crook Project Space. This space is um, a part of the David Crook Empire, which is a printmaking studio and a bookstore, as you may have know, known. And then they have this space, which they encourage projects in and um, they showcase their, what happens in their printmaking studio. So about two or three years ago, I started those, uh, those horse prints. I think some of you may have seen my horse shows and those were part of that period. And we had some of those um, horse prints left over and Jill, who's um, the head printer at the printmaking studio, said, hey, Rhett, why don't we do something with these prints? And, I, and um, we kind of like got speaking about it. Um, we did a new series two years ago, which is underneath that. Um, and those kind of got shelved, and, we, and I forgot about them, Jill forgot about them. And then toward the end of last year, I was at Quinton's show. He's my studio mate. David Crit represents him. Um, and um, we, uh, I bumped into Amay, who runs this space. And Amay said, hey, Rhett, it's about time we do something with you. Um, and so this project was born. My plan was to have a very big installation in the middle of the space. Um, using the sculptural elements that I'd been working with and I'd, in that moment I was like, how am I going to pull this one off? And Amay uh, was like, but that model you brought in was so interesting. I think we should use the model as, a, as, as the foundation for an exhibition. And so I started planning these works um, at this scale of 1 to 10. Um, I learned CAD in a, in a week, the basics to be able to get a laser cut, model laser cut. Um, I'm, and I was like set to, and yeah, to, to have the show. The whole time it's been a, a very process orientated show because I never really had a proper directive from the beginning. I, I've been working through it um, in, a, in a very organic kind of way. And uh, the geometries that have em emerged um, emerged as a tribute to this Russian constructivism that was around in the 20s and 30s in Russia. And as a result, I uh, started to kind of look at Russian constructivism as a, as a, 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 a complementary idea to the geometry that I'd become interested in. And uh, these pieces here are all made out of paper. So everything you see here is made out of paper. All of the, everything basically is paper. And uh, some of the, and the application of this rust material on top of it is a rust paper treatment that I use. Um, and the idea is that I, 
I can use paper to, to make something very quickly and um, I can kind of manipulate it easily. The plan is to turn some of these into um, steel sculptures. Um, so this is a maquette process. Now, onto the story. The story is about this architect, um, Joao Miguel. <laughs> okay, get his name. Mangual, get his, pronounce his name wrong. Who was around in the um, 60s and 70s in Mozambique, a prominent businessman, an architect, and a person who was uh, heavily involved in Frelimo at the time and in, uh, in, in, um, in supporting the uh, armed struggle in South Africa, um, particularly the Mkonto Wesizwe. And his involvement led to, um, uh, and I suppose the fact that he was quite an eloquent guy, he liaised quite often between um, um, Russia, Russian dignitaries and Frelimo uh, uh, politicians, and he visited Russia a number of times. Um, and being an architect, he was obviously also interested in, um, in art. And particularly in this modernist art, because um, the connection between architecture and art in the modernist era is very uh, established. And um, he, be he began to collect some pieces of this Russian constructivism. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen these sculpture graveyards in Russia. Huge statues lying around, sort of rusting in fields, overgrown fields. Um, and this work here is kind of inspired by that. However, this, this is the work of those, what this group called the New Constructivists, who established this uh, uh, practice outside of their uh, usual propaganda-orientated sculpture. Anyway, Mangual was, um, would collect some of these pieces, and he um, came over, he shipped them back to Mozambique. Um, and in the late 70s, he decided uh, that he would want to show his pieces. And Johannesburg is such being the kind of cultural center, I suppose, at the time. He visited a prominent art dealer here, and he tried to organize an exhibition of the work that he had been collecting. A lot of it's steel work. And uh, he um, then uh, um, apparently, allegedly, had a meeting with uh, MK operatives, and they um, planned to smuggle some of these uh, arms from, um, through Frelimo in these sculptures over the border and into South Africa under the guise of this art exhibition. However, it's alleged that there was a National Party spy at the MK meeting, and Mangual was found dead um, 
near the area that they were meeting in at the time. In 1978, he was found dead in the Yuxke River um, near Ravonia. Right, so that's the story. I've fabricated the entire story. Um, why did I do that? Well, because I somehow found um, that the research process that I'd been using had become almost irrelevant and that I'd gone into this just sheer making process and I'd lost track of what I was doing and I wanted to retrack what I was doing in a kind of narrative. Um, and the narrative to some degree has a lot of um, personal meaning to me because much of my, my mom and James and the family that I grew up with were involved in um, political, uh, they, there was a large degree of political uh, involvement in my family. In fact, James's best friend's son, um, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy would smuggle arms into the country on behalf of MK. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, so these kinds of stories are really weaving together a, per a personal history, and I wanted to create a character that drove the narrative behind this. One of my friends comment, one of my studio mates commented, and he said a few weeks ago, "Well, you've made a bunch of modernist sculptures. I'm seeing Richard Serra in here. I'm seeing Anselm Kiefer. I'm seeing." Uh, uh, Eduardo Villa, I'm seeing all of these prominent modernist sculptors, but how is this different from the 60s and how is it different from what happened before? And so the narrative has developed out of that and my plan is to kind of extend that narrative and build this character um, as, a, as a kind of uh, fictional um, as, a, as a story. So I found it useful for me to contextualize everything that I've been making and it, it's sort of generating new stuff for me as well. It's a process. The idea of the, sh of the model is also that I can shift these, these exhibitions inside of there around. A few people have taken photos. I was posting um, images on Instagram a week before and I had coffee with my mom a couple of days before and she was like, and I was like, she was like, wow, look at these big things you're making, they're so, they're enormous, and I was like, they're this big. Um, so the idea is to be able to constantly switch the shows and um, the model enables me to do things that would just be imp impossible, or oh, they're not impossible, they would require enormous budgets and enormous uh, resources to, to do this on a, on full, at full scale. Yeah. So, the, so the thing is at the moment that they are still in their uh, maquette phase um, and what I plan to do is remake these in tin. So the sculpture will be in tin and then this will be laser cut steel that's been powder coated. Mm -hmm. Well, they certainly, I mean, if someone wanted to buy them, and then I told her they were made out of paper and she was like, well, how do you preserve that? And, and I said, well, we can do a box. But 
I got, I got thinking about it yesterday. So on Thursday night, I said we could do a glass box around it. And on Thursday night, I got thinking about that. I was like, no, I don't want a glass box around it. I want to remake them in steel. Um, I think a glass box would separate the work a bit. And incidentally, something I'm very proud of with this show, my entire materials bill was less than a thousand rand. Um, David Critz kindly sponsored the model because they will keep the model now for planning their future shows. In fact, that's actually um, quite a practice in galleries overseas. Sometimes they'll uh, gallery with the big international stars. They give the artist a model of the space and they plan their shows like that. So, so they sponsored the model. All the papers, leftover paper from my last exhibition. It's all 200 gram fa Fabriano, um, and oh, and then the. The prints is collaborative, so that's an enormous cost, but um, to get prints out. Oh, just incidentally, these are all originals, and those are additions. So a little bit about the process of printmaking. These are the build-up test prints um, before you finally addition them. So in this case, I would have started somewhere here and done a simple drawing and then I'm dissatisfied and so I draw more and dissatisfied, draw more, draw more, till I get to another point completely. Now, the printmaking people were a little bit perturbed by my process because I'm so um, aggressive with the plate. Chad said that he cut his fingers a couple of times because I'd gouged so deeply in the plate. But he's, he was interested in that idea because he said that he's never really worked with a sculptor before and, um, and he, re he felt the difference in, in uh, the approach, whereas the um, Two-dimensional artists are often very aware of the surface, and I'm kind of very aware of the copper and, and like how hard it is and how much of my body. At one point, I had the plate on the thing, and I was using diamond-tipped needle, dragging this knee, this across, and you can get these extremely deep marks. Um, so this is oh, and this is all dry points, which means that it's you work directly onto the plate. There's no acid bite in it. You don't, uh, you know, with etching, for example, you put a wax layer over the plate, you draw into it, and then you put that in acid, and the acid uh, um, eats away the, the drawn mark. This is a direct drawn mark. Um, so, yeah. Um, this series sold out a while back, um, and we literally, uh, these test proofs, we, we would have to normally tear up and throw away. So that's what happens to all test proofs normally. So all of this normally gets torn up and thrown away. Um, it's not, uh, there's a huge ethical framework which printmakers off, um, work around. Um, if a print edition comes out in 15, there'll be two working proofs, uh, two, two uh, 
sorry, two artist proofs and two, or one artist proof, one printer's proof, and then the addition of 15. Um, and then everything else gets destroyed. Even the plates get destroyed. However, the loophole is if you work over it, if you draw over it, it becomes an original. So these are all originals. They've all been interve I've intervened in all of them. So none of these actually look anything like the final edition. Yeah. And this is also why that these are slightly more expensive than the the working than the editions because they are originals. The one is called um, dystopic perspective, and the other one's called refinery perspective. And the, this one particularly reminded me of those um, win, very early, early winter mornings when you're driving out toward like Vereniging or some, you know, and you've got these very flat landscapes, and they're quite brutal. Um, and and, and this one is kind of like looking at my, again, like modernist architecture in Johannesburg. There's a very beautiful example of um, a modernist building that people thought Le Corbusier had designed in Greenside. It's bordering that little park on pirates. I can't remember the architect's name, but for years people said, did Le Corbusier design this? Anyway, I, I was I was invited. I was I was staring at this house one day, and the owners, who I think is a partner of Tonic Design, not Greg Gamble, the other partner, asked me to come and uh, invited me in. Um, and I'm absolutely obsessed with architecture. My huge portion of my friends are architects. I'm always trying to pick their brains and. Um, so there's a real obsession with like the architectural form, but then that Joburg thing, my studio is in the middle of town, so there's this constant aggressive layer that kind of goes into that as well. So, and that's, that's kind of present everywhere. There's this uh, precise line and then a very aggressive line as well. So I'm like a little bit obsessive about drawing in my sketchbooks um, and my journals. Brit was kept keeps bugging me, please bring the journals, please. Bring, and I, I keep going, yeah, but what about that sensitive information I've got in there about that day that I was like so, and like <laughs> I've got to edit that out. Um, so. Um, um, a lot of artists work like this. Uh, I saw a talk with Jeff Koons recently where he spoke about, he does still draw, but he draws in order to remember an idea. Um, and I think that's what the, the journals are. They're drawing toward remembering an idea. The irony about putting a show together is that so many concepts go into generating a show. like. I mean, at one point I thought I'm going to have fish tanks in here and that would represent the guy drowning and then I was going to have plants and all sorts of things and videos and all kinds of things. And um, I wanted to sort of turn this into like a really multi-sensorial experience and it kind of gets pared down to a few things in the end. And it's really like the few things that work together. So some of those 
out of all the hundreds of ideas that happen on a, you know, throughout the course of, of an exhibition, a few make it. So, um, geometry, I wasn't particularly good at maths at school, and for some reason I'm spending the, the mid, my midlife trying to catch up, and um, I have become very interested in just drawing geometry, um, particularly like the platonic solids. So the platonic solids are shapes which are, um, um, platonic solids are shapes which, uh, where every part of the shape um, has the exact same surface as every other part of the shape. There are only about five or six platonic solids. It's a three-sided pyramid, um, dodahedron, iconohedron, something like that. Um, anyway, these these geometries are appearing. The geometries are appearing as a as a a, a, a kind of. Um, imposition of that modernism and that mathematics that I've become interested in much later. Yeah. So the constructivists were uh, around in the 20s in Russia, particularly in Russia, and they built stuff. I mean, they literally built stuff, and they built stuff using fairly simple geometric forms. Very famous um, uh, constructivist sculptor was uh, Vladimir Tatlin, and he built this amazing tower, which is a little bit like a kind of upside-down spiral with these uh, I-beams and Warren trusses going up it. And it's a very, very industrial influence to, to, the, to the work. And very kind of part of that Russian uh, surge of... of um, of embracing the industrial era and embracing industry. Um, so the kind of politics and the, the spirit of the times was captured in, in their art. So the new constructivists were this group that um, Joao Mangual got interested in. And the new constructivists, obviously now we're looking at the 60s and 70s, where the 50s, uh, where the constructivists were around in the 20s. So to kind of contextualize it within a time frame, and that's why we have the new constructivists. The modernist plunder is just because of the nature of the show. It just looks like there's a sort of orgy of constructivist images everywhere. Um, and I've kind of greedily grabbed them from history and relocated them in this space. The, the title is a, it's not a direct uh, um, quote or it, from the narrative. I mean, I could have titled it uh, Joao Mangual, the artist activist. I could have, it just, as far as um, art history goes and addressing art history, I wanted it to have this almost pseudo-academic framework. I want to frame it, frame it within a kind of 
pseudo-academic context. So academics love to uh, capture things within uh, movements and like the new constructivists. Um, and then I suppose part of the modernists, I mean, modernists always used to have manifestos, you know. I don't think anyone has a manifesto like, we are the, the, uh, the new surrealists and we're the abstract realists and whatever. And they'd have a manifesto and they'd meet in coffee bars and they'd like put together some weird directive and then they'd all like try and do that for a while and then another group of people would come and like oppose them, you know, it was a, it was a real jousting thing and a identity construction, you know. So, so all of this is just like this bollocks about modernism, you know, like how modernists used to love to construct that identity for themselves. And, and, and I mean, you think about I think about um, growing up in the 80s and how committed people were to their labels. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, an activist, and uh, I'm a, I suppose people are now even more so, but I don't know, there was just like a sense of like people making niche, uh, move, uh, little movements for themselves. Yeah. I think Picasso started that. Uh, Picasso started this this whole idea of like where the where the uh, cubists, you know, him and Brock, and and then of course Andre Breton and the uh, surrealists, they and uh, the da and Marcel Duchamp and the Dadaists and all the ists, you know, constructivists and Tatlin and the constructivists and jeez, no one does that anymore. It was quite cool though, you know, felt like you're in a, I don't know, it's almost like constructing a, or like an art superhero identity. <laughs> Well, uh, as I said, these are, I mean, some of these are stories that are so close to my own family history. You know, having James's best friend's son being an arms smuggler. My mom was involved in political activism. Uh, periodically, James's brother was uh, uh, hiding people in, in, in his house in the 80s. Getty over there was involved in the, in the struggle and worked for various organizations over the years. So this is like deeply ingrained into my own family history. Um, and, and incidentally, James's brother was a co-founder of the Johannesburg Art Foundation. And Bill Ainsley was a... Uh, if you know you know about Joburg art history, William Kentridge studied under Bill Ainsley, but Bill Ainsley was kind of that character who was politically very involved, but also very involved in like modernist art. Um, do you remember that that guy he brought out from America, that steel sculptor? 
And in the 80s, you know, in South Africa, after the cult, during the middle of this cultural boycott, you know, everyone was painting figurative art, and, and Bill Ainsley would bring out this, these um, crazy abstract artists that were putting pieces of, gigantic pieces of steel together. Uh, Anthony Caro, that's his name. And, uh, and simultaneously, Bill was very involved with the careers of, of township artists. Helen Sabidi, he put he helped Helen Sabidi sort of gain almost international recognition at the time. Um, and then there was this movement of, of political activism over the borders as well. Um, Bill was Zimbabwean, so he would come over the border uh, you know, I do projects over there. So all of this stuff is like mashed up from, I told William the other day, I said, you know, William, I'm sure I used to when I was in Standard 7. I was 14 years old. I used to walk around the Art Foundation and I'd studied there as a, as a teenager and William was studying there at the same time. But he was now obviously in his third or fourth year or whatever at that time, and I'd see him there. So I have my own history with the Art Foundation. Um, and it's interesting because I, I, I can't always struggling with this thing about charcoal drawing and black and white, and, and I'm always struggling it in relation to, to William Kentridge, who's such a huge name in the world. But all of this black and white stuff came from Bill Ainsley, you know, all this, and, and this appreciation of modernism, which you'll see in William's work. It came from Bill Ainsley. Um, he was such a profoundly influential teacher, one of the best teachers this country's ever produced. To think that uh, Kentridge has had such huge uh, influence from this man, he pretty much, I, I guess he is quite celebrated, but he's, he's not, he's, yeah. He's the guy who, who taught, he taught the charcoal style where you'd, you'd put this backing of charcoal on your drawing first and then rub out and then draw over it and rub out. And of course, we've come to know that as William's style. Um, and, and just William just knew how to do it better than anyone else, really. So yeah, I want to extend on this narrative as I go and build this man's portfolio, but I actually thought that this is quite a nice way to think about exhibitions um, as, um, as stories, um, rather than as just presenting a bunch of objects and, and not having a context to how those objects exist or why they exist in the world. So I would like to actually do a story about someone who, uh, a, a, a Cape Tonian film director who tried to make a science fiction movie in the 70s as well. I've been thinking about that as well. <laughs>
So yeah, it's been really rewarding working with the narrative. What's so different about this era of working as an artist is that there was once a time where one got away with presenting your object and then you could kind of stand back and then that was it. But I think artists now are, are they really do have to present something really ex dynamic and extensive and there's got to be context and uh, it has to be, um, it has to address, address a, a multitude of uh, sensorial aspects. So, you know, it's often, often as one's more seduced by sound and stories and uh, not, just, not just pictures. Thanks, everyone. Thank <laughs>